This is Paul Daly here with my wife, Caroline. Hey, guys. And today we're here to discuss the third episode of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This one is called Because You Left. I feel like we could put under the theme of control. Who has it? Who's seeking it? Who's trying to figure out how to handle the concept of control? And I feel like all of our characters could really be put under that category. We can kind of talk about their journey and how they deal with it. Yeah, at first blush, this episode might seem on the filler side of things. You know, not a lot of like stupendous things happen. But if you if you think about it, if you if you listen to our illustrious podcast and then go back and watch it, you'll say, no, actually, quite a bit did go on with this. And it was structurally more interesting than just filler. It, it deserves a little more credit than that. I agree. I think that definitely each of the characters had some amount of a journey. I, won't, I, I hesitate to say growth because some of the people end up in a better spot. Some of them end up in a worse spot. Um, but I would definitely say that they go through different feelings and emotions and they try to sort of move there. If you imagine them all driving their own little car, they try to make their own moves. Some of them are more successful than others. Let's start off with Susie and talk about how is she trying to control what's going on in her world. And I think you mean Chuckle Frankenberg. <laughs> Chuckle Frankenberg. Or sir, or uh, what, is it, what does the judge say? Like, sit down, little boy. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Susie. I mean, she is such a lost soul in terms of like, where does she fit in? You know, like she's constantly being mistaken for a, a man or a boy, even really, not even a man. And she just like never really seems to quite have like her identity fully flushed out. Like we have that conversation where Lenny comes in to the, the um, diner with Midge and Susie is so flustered. Lenny's like, well, what do you do? What's going on with you? And she's like, blank. I've got nothing. Like, I right. don't know anything. She what's says going sentences on with, with words in the wrong order and stuff like that. It's so funny. And even there's a conversation that she has with Rose where she's trying to call and say, hey, you know, um, I'm just a friend and Midge is going to be late. And Rose manages to run circles around her controlling that conversation where, you know, Susie's like, I, there was times when I was Janet, I was Carol. There's times <laughs> I didn't even know my own name. You know, that's very uh, dealing with Emily Gilmore-esque from Gilmore Girls there was definitely many conversations of being like well you just got Gilmored you know and I feel like this was like you just got Wiseman you know like big yeah. time so it's that kind of feeling you think that made her do her her one big solo scene right yeah I really do that and I think that Midge really grabbing her shoulders and talking to her after the court appearance and saying like you have this right you've got this under control you are going to catapult my career this is going to work that suddenly Susie felt like you know what I, I do need to actually get it together. So how does she handle that? She goes and talks to a guy named Mr. Drake, who we're supposed to understand is sort of a big either agent or just influential person in the New York comedy world and probably New Jersey. And he's at the Friars Club. He's a big deal. He's got a table in the back. That whole thing, like if you touched her boys, you should wash your hands, all that. I mean, oh my God. Just yeah. the constant belittling of Susie is so extreme, right? I thought it was interesting that she felt like the best way for her to figure out how to be in control was to basically very literally go ask a man. It, uh, hmm. Well, I mean, for the age, 
That makes a whole lot of sense. It's very gutsy, though, because, you know, to actually go to ask a man, maybe you don't know because you're a man. It would be a lot for me to go to a man and say, could you tell me how to be a leader? I mean, most of the time, the way that they handle it is like, you know, you become empowered around other women. You feel like you could be a leader within other women. But it's it takes a lot more guts to go to a man and ask them to teach you how to do it. There are certain elements of this show where they modernize some of the lingo when they say things like, is that a thing? I didn't know that was a thing. That's that's kind of a modern way to say something. Agreed. But when it comes to the color and sex type politics, I think they're sticking close to the time period, if not trying to be completely legit. I think so too. I think you're right on. And that really leads us right into Rose and the way that she handles things. So if you guys remember, that's Miriam's mom. And the way that she exercises control in this episode is in a very stereotypical woman of a, of a yesteryear kind of way. Oh, you mean nagging your husband? <laughs> well, and just like talking and talking and talking to him, like during that entire coffee scene, he's basically like, he basically has a couple lines. Where's the coffee? Where's my briefcase? That is a signature Sherman Palladino kind of scene because uh, you can you look at Gilmore Girls and there will be this same scene where someone comes in to a room where someone's already at and they've got their mission and they say some stuff that the other person doesn't acknowledge. And then the other person says some stuff that they kind of acknowledge. And then they have kind of like two and a half conversations, right? Yeah. Once having one conversation with nobody, once having another conversation with nobody, and the other one is, and together they're talking about something else not related to the other things. I'll give you a good example of that. There's the and there the, the phrase copper boom came from a conversation where Rory is yelling up to Lorelai asking for certain things and Lorelai is answering completely different things and essentially they both come downstairs and Lorelai's well like like let's get ready to go copper boom. She's like why did you say that? She's like that's what I thought you said and it's like the conversations just muddled together. It was basically like one was talking about skincare and one was talking about, and it was sort of like copper having to do with skin and boom, it was it was so silly, but copper boom is a very, you know, well-known Gilmore phrase, which basically adds up to two different people having two different conversations, mashing those together and coming up with some nonsensical phrase that both of them can kind of laugh about. So that definitely happened. But in this case, it was that she was really trying to appeal to Abe and the whole idea that we have to protect our daughter and you're her father, your daughter's in trouble and you're doing nothing. And Rose's way to handle it, I think is very interesting. And let me just tell you, Paul, plenty of women, I wouldn't say I do this, but plenty of women I know subscribe to make his home life so uncomfortable that he is compelled to bring back his his comfortable place to be at the end of the day. So having the housekeeper put a sign out that's like, everyone be quiet. And she's got all the all the drapes, you know, pulled closed. And he comes in. You can tell by Ib's face, this is not the first time this has happened. I mean, he's like, oh, shit. Like, it's gotten to this. We're like, I have to go in there. And he even is like, what can I get you? Like, how can we start fixing this? And, you know, he realizes that he's not going to be able to not act as far as Rose is concerned. Or his life 
is going to be a series of coming home and having to be silent in his house and his wife basically being on like the fainting couch, you know? Mm, yeah. Well, and as a guy, I can tell you, as an aging guy, I can tell you the the things that kind of interrupt your routine at home are very unwelcome when you're like coming home from work or what have you. Those things that are you're expecting to be there. I mean, in my case, it's not necessarily like something like, dinner or something like that. But there is just that routine before you finally get to blessedly <laughs> go to sleep, hopefully that day. For sure, your creature comforts are like, that is like your number one. That's your currency. You know, we talk about with kids, like you have to find their currency to get them to do what you want them to do. Some kids, it's M&Ms, but some kids are like, I just want to see what's in your purse. And you have to be like, you can see what's in my purse if you do all these other things. So like the currency for Abe and for many men are just their creature comforts. They want to be able to come home, have a good meal, relax, maybe watch TV, maybe read, maybe do whatever their hobbies and if are. there's someone sitting in my spot... Yeah, or my spot is dirty because someone else has left like, you know, a PB&J on it oh, or something. Oh, no. Anything that's like neglectful of your creature comforts, is gonna, it's going to affect you, right? Yeah. So let's move on over to Abe and talk about his journey of control. Rose, you know, fires him up, basically uses her... Influence? Sorcery ways, <laughs> right? Because she doesn't... I think it's interesting that Rose doesn't stamp her foot. Doesn't yell at him. She's just like damsel in distress. If only I could, I could, I could open the curtains again. If only my knight in shining armor would come in and save the day, then all would be well. She doesn't demand it of him. She doesn't say, I'm not gonna cook you dinner if you don't do what I say. She just totally shuts it all down. So who does he decide he's got to go get in on this team? His least favorite person on the earth, next to Joel. Right. So Moish, though, is also his like sort of counterpart, right? He's right. got he's, he's got to go over there. They're and, like diplomats. Mm-hmm. And he's the other head of state, right? He's yeah. got to go over there and talk to him. They figure that the most important part to keeping this couple together, meaning Midge and Joel, is to keep that apartment available to them, which I do have to say, I think that that's pretty realistic. What do you think? That was a pretty big olive branch for for Abe to put out because he kind of he has these uh, things that he's holding against Moish, particularly like the temple seats that they have to pay for that Moish never anted up for apparently for his half. So the idea of getting in halvesies with something else expensive is daunting, but. This is what makes this scene so great is how conciliatory he is with Moish and how that really mirrors what has to happen with Midge uh, in another part of this episode where they're both going in to this unfair arbiter of their future and having to just suck it up, say the things that they want to hear and get out of there with what you want. And what Abe wants is that apartment back so that if things settle down, then they can get it back. You and know? I think that it's very realistic that that apartment represents, you know, the the true, like, which way this is going to go. If the apartment is left available, then really all you have to do is reassemble the people inside of it. But if the apartment goes away and then you have to get the people together and then they have to have a home together, their whole system is messed up. You know, right now, Abe and Rose are right right in on the other floor. They have this very dependent lifestyle with one another. And losing that apartment, having anyone else live there and have having Joel and Midge have to either start over or what have you, it just, it breaks the whole 
story for them, you know? Abe is just so awesome in this scene, though. Oh my like, God, his gestures. When he's, oh, God. When Moish is saying, like, uh, I invite you and you never come over. And he goes, well, I'm busy with school. And he says, well, and Shirley never gets to see Rose enough. And, and, he, and he points his hat at me and it says, says something to the effect of, that we should do more of. <laughs> right. So I love it, right? He totally sells out his wife. Like, you know what? Yeah, exactly. The women should absolutely hang out. Me, I'm busy. But then they should get together. Yeah, very, very on point there. So I feel like his entire conversation there, you know, he has talked to Midge all along so far in these first couple episodes about, you know, going and seeking out Joel, continuously being the one to try to win him back. At the end of this episode, we have Miriam having to come back and tell Abe, who's in the apartment with the kids, that, um, which is kind of funny, you know, she asks, like, why are you down here with the kids? And she's like, oh, you know, Ethan likes to sleep in his bed. We don't know why he's down there. What's going on in his apartment? The scene from Macbeth. She's all wailing <laughs> and it's dark and right. everything's uncomfortable. So, you know, for him to be like, Ethan likes to be in his own bed. Sure. And you like to read without hearing wailing going on in the other room. So it was very, you know, to his advantage to be out of there. The conversation that he has where he realizes that, you know, Joel has come back and has said he wants to try to make men's. And Miriam is like, this is where the title comes from. Because you left, I can't just piece this back together again. And even though they didn't show that conversation between Abe and Miriam, I felt like just the look on Abe's face when she says, I told him no, I felt like there was some mix of like, Partially, you know, sadness and despair that like his own plan didn't come to fruition, but also respect and like kind of all like, wow, you actually had the option to go back to this entire lifestyle and you're choosing like your dignity and having like keeping the bar high and having a standard to say you can't just up and leave me and I'm going to stick around and be here for you. I felt like there was so much going on on his face that it was really Amazing. What he brings here is just a lot of pathos, you know, with his with his old guy's face and his big mustache and his slumped shoulders and and it's just like like Caroline said, you can read a lot into it. I got acceptance finally that he's like, Well, I guess we gotta move on with plan B because the, that ship has sailed. I really appreciate it, though, because it's like it's such love. You know, it's such a different situation than what is going on with Rose and that he definitely loves Rose and he wants to give Rose what she wants. But listening to his daughter and understanding that these are not her hopes and dreams, pursuing Joel and being submissive to him is not what she's about. And he seemed to, like, take that in and almost have a, a, a some pride you know, like it was like, wow, you know, you really you did that and you're willing to have a harder life just to stand on your own principles where just earlier today, I let all my principles go in order to just try to do what my wife wanted me to do and save the situation. I had to like kowtow to a guy that I'm not interested in and you didn't, you know, and so it's like generationally, it's like and you didn't do that to his son, you know, like, mm -hmm. wow, I raised a more, I don't know, respectful kind of uh Dignified. Dignified daughter, which I think he was kind of proud about, you know? That Abe move you described reminded me of a of a signature Caroline moment from oh, our God. from our history. Can't imagine. I, I've been informed earlier today that I shouldn't be allowed to remember things. <laughs> Shut up. But uh, here we go anyway. I don't remember exactly the time frame, except that we had little kids. Little tiny kids that did a lot more crying and complaining than they did 
you know, happy, joyful things at the time. I think it was winter. I think it was after the holidays and the house or during the holidays. And the house was just, you know, a wreck from just baby stuff and present stuff and whatever else. And we were at your parents' house and uh, we had two cars and it was time for one of us to get back to the kids. Maybe it's a babysitting thing or maybe it was who knows what. And I say, are you coming with me? And you say, I'm not going back to that hell hole. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Self-preservation at its finest, right? And you didn't. I went back (laughs) and you came back a few hours later, but yeah. And I probably had had a couple spirits and was probably a lot more happy to be there. I came back on my own accord, right? You did. Not because anyone forced me or told me I had to. And uh, yeah, that's what I'm going to say is like a modern gal, right? Just because I have responsibilities and whatnot doesn't mean I have to uh, put up with anything, right? So you can probably appreciate Abe's position in the in the unfamiliar reading chair in his daughter's apartment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about Joel for a second before we head over to Miriam, because he has some small parts here, but I think that they're really important. We have two different flashbacks concerning Joel that really exemplify his long reach with Midge of control. And I think that they're both Joel POV shots. You could argue that the first one in college with blonde Midge is kind of like a shared thing, but then the the speech practice is definitely all all Joel remembering better times. Let's talk about that college party a little bit. So Minch was there for with another date and Joel comes along after, you know, really staring hard at her for a while. And, and co- cock blocks. Yeah. And like really like harasses Palmer. I, I know on your notes you, you, you said that this was him just meeting her for the first time. But I got from their conversation that he's been in pursuit a little while. I think that you're exactly right. I think he has been in pursuit a while. And actually he mentions that, you know, she says something like every time I turn around, you seem to be standing there. Yeah. Yeah. So he hasn't worked up to, I guess, maybe she, maybe he's asked and she's just said no, or maybe he hasn't worked up to asking just yet. But this is a pretty bold freaking move. You yeah. Know? I think that he was all about prime and the pump. I think he was one of those guys who wasn't so bold as to say, would you go out with me? But instead does that sort of move where he's like hanging around, hanging around, hanging around. And like, like he never asked her to dance. They just started dancing. And some of that stuff is like, it, it's a slick way to get around rejection, but it's also kind of a cowardly way of doing it. You sort of slyly force the situation to where she didn't actually have an opportunity to say like, no, I'm not going to dance with you. Let me alone. It was like, all of a sudden they were like already dancing. It reminds me of another pop culture reference with uh, the way that George Costanza works on women is he just lingers forever right. until Wears they just down. right then he has this like Costanza kind of <laughs> like theme song that kind of <laughs> resonates in the woman's mind until they just are like fine whatever let's go out well and it's like they already find themselves sort of like eating dinner or something and then they're like oh my god like I didn't even he didn't ask me on a date but yet here we are right and it was very much like that like how do you like this song well it's our well it's our song now so Joel oh is the God. George Costanza of this uh, And I show. would say, though, very controlling, very manipulative, very um, calculating on how he handles everything with Mitch, including that prep speech that he gives with his dad. Like, you know, he's sitting there and going through, like, all the reasons why he doesn't want to be in the fashion business. And, you know, here's Miriam absolutely bolstering him. Like, yes, this is perfect. You can do this. 
But it's like this whole idea of him trying to control his own destiny. You know, I was kidding around with that George Costanza reference, but really, I mean, George is a very overbearing, always, he, he can't, his instincts are wrong so often that he has to overthink things in order just to, just to exist day to day, you know? Okay. And that results in this kind of neurotic, you know, existence uh, that he, that he shows in the show. And, and I think Joel's, Joel was more charismatic, but essentially the same underlying kind of characteristics. You're right. I and mean, he's definitely had a lot more help getting up in, in his his world. So like, you know, we know that his uncle gave him the job. And so now, yes, he's like the head of, you know, this department, it seems he's doling out different, you know, tasks that have to be done. But at the same time, you don't get really that feeling like he like earned that position or that he's actually like the best man for the job. It's just like even you can tell the way the other guys talk to him like they're like, come on, don't make me go like that's not the way that it's talked to. You know, you talk to a boss who's like you actually respect or New Jersey just really sucks. All of that. <laughs> All of it. So oh, I also thought like right after that business meeting, didn't it remind you of the George Costanza? Like once he finally gets in with a girl that he really has like a lot to do with with Susan, then he spends like all of his time wanting to get out of that engagement. It's like with Penny. Like he, right. you know, he was like sneaking around behind, wouldn't have this other relationship. And now Penny's calling and he's like, man, tell her I'm gone. Right, right. And then the big culminating Joel scene when he tries to, ambush midge i like ambush george would do this he would he would find a find susan and say i take it back i i, I want to keep trying or, or something whatever it is that joel said that was completely pathetic okay so I mean, do you know why as a guy why this is like the least appealing reason you could you could come up with well my instincts would say something like like you broke something that can't be fixed just by you deciding that it's fixed now. It's okay. it's kind of like a two-part decision on what's broken and what's fixed. And my side still looks pretty broken from over here, right? Okay, so here's the thing. What he what he sort of lays out to Miriam is how the consequences of these actions that he's taken haven't really turned out the way he expected them to. And since they're really not that fun and that great, then let's just give it another try. That is a really, really awful way to approach somebody. If he had said something like, I've realized how much I love you and I miss the kids and I loved our life together. And this is what is so important to me. You can't come at it like my current sitch kind of blows. I'm sleeping on a couch. So let's just going back. Let's I just want to sleep in a bed. So how about we just make this working? I mean, come on. Yeah, the thing is, if he would have had the right words, he couldn't have gotten back in the apartment that night, but he could have gotten his foot in the door. You I know? think maybe. I think if he had said... You know, being away from you made me realize how special you are to me and what a unique person you are. And I love you so much. And I can't be without you. You maybe could have gotten Miriam to be like, I at least want to think about this. But just saying like, this sitch right now kind of sucks for me. So how about we be married again? It's like, oh, no, no, no. And I'm really proud of her for saying no and just like, saying, no way, this isn't going to work out. Well, ultimately, her because you left reason is why I personally also dismiss Joel. Like, 
I hope they don't ever get back together. I know how the series, this season ends, but I don't know how the series ends, obviously. And I hope Joel, you know, sets sail, you know? I'm with you wholeheartedly. I think that this isn't the guy for Miriam. I think that anybody who's willing to cut and run just because they're essentially like bored. I mean, she wasn't doing anything like wrong and their relationship wasn't terrible. It was just that he was basically bored and wanted to try something else. And I don't know how you could ever get back with somebody who is so willing to walk away so easily over basically nothing. You know, in our relationships, we've had to go through so many different challenges. If at any point in time we just walked away from the other, how could you ever feel like, well, the next time the shoe drops, you're going to just leave again? So this is all just a waiting game of like, when's the next time you feel like you don't want to be here anymore? Well, I mean, I think salt in the wound is stuff like Midge trying so hard, you know, she does her exercises, she puts her cream on so that he can't, so that he can't see it. He does, she does the makeup in the morning. She does the whole thing and he'd still rather have sex with someone that's just handy with Penny Pan. Convenience, right? You know? Yeah. She, it's, it's not even like he likes her. She's just kind of there. And that's that kind of rejection. I mean, how do you I don't think you can give, really get over that if you if you're engaging <laughs> your higher thought process. Personally, I could not because I, I mean, obviously, as Rose and Abe show in a marriage, in a marriage, you are beholden to one another. And there is a lot more like string pulling and being like, you know, if I'm upset, then you're upset. And that's the deal. And he doesn't want that relationship. So it, he can't even deal with the idea of like, if you're unhappy, then I have to be unhappy. So I'm just going to be with Penny Pan who like, I don't give a shit if she's happy or not. And my feelings don't have to be wrapped up in hers. Like I can just say, oh, I'm gone for the day and not even answer. Even though, you know, Mrs. Mouskowitz pointed out Penny had called several times. He doesn't care. He's unaffected by this. It just occurred to me that all the examples I gave about Midge were about her physical being, oh, would you like to say? I would else? like to expand that and say that it's just indicative that she's she's there and she's trying her best in all facets. I gave physical examples, but I believe that she is applying everything she's got to being, you know, Mrs. Maisel. I really appreciate that you quantified that because I think that she does other things to show love, like her love language, like making sure that the meat and the dinner is just right and making sure that um, she actually goes to the comedy shows with him and makes notes and, you know, is absolutely supportive of him on that emotional, mental level, you know, wanting to banter with him and come up with ideas. So you're right. I think that she's been a partner with him at every turn. And so if, if your partner is going to be able to walk on you at any time and just leave, I don't know how you partner with them again. You know, I think that that's too scary. It's too much to ask of anyone. We're covering This Is Us right now, and I won't go into it, but there's a there's a particular couple in there right now who are not together. And we go back and forth about like, can that woman ever really go back into that relationship after all that guy's done? You know, is, is it even like, could we even respect her if she did? Even though we would like it if there could be a fairy tale ending for them. It just feels like, at some point, you're you're just being a doormat and you just, it's too much. All right. We've run through our main point of view characters on this episode, except for one. We're left with Midge and everything she went through in her own journey to find some measure of control in her life. 
we started um, with the whole jail cell scene, and she can't even help herself in that situation to just sort of be a wallflower. You know, there's like a lady behind her who's discussing having just stabbed her husband to death, and she's like, oh, for those bloodstains, you can, you know, put salt in boiling water. It was such a funny but, like, poignant illustration that Midge is not just supposed to be someone who just walk right by. Like, she's even going to become, like, the jailhouse leader, you know? Did that remind you of that Golden Girls scene where the girls get taken to the, to the holding cell with the prostitutes? Yeah, and Rose totally starts telling them the Butter Queen story. Yeah. It did. It totally did. Yeah, it did too. It did me also. And who bails her out this time? My favorite character in the whole show, Lenny Bruce. Man, I mean, this guy, I don't, you know... I'm kind of a fan of the idea of alternate history, you know, like okay. books that dabble with with a, a kind of like a, a starting point that did happen historically, but then go another direction and say, some, you know, it, it turned out differently. Like, I've read a book that said, what if Stonewall Jackson lived? The, the conjecture is... They would have won the Civil War, <laughs> you know? Um, and so things like this, where it's like Lenny Bruce, I got an actual, well-documented human being on planet Earth weaving in through this story. Can Midge and, and Lenny have some sort of romantic sort of thing later or wind up together? I don't know. I don't even know if that's great for them. It kind of has like this cool will they, won't they sort of aspect to it, the way that they keep kind of circling each other now. Because it's not really like a romantic angle. I mean, even there's a point where he's like, was I supposed to make a pass at you? Because he's like, you know, he he said that he thinks she's cute and all that kind of that kind of stuff, but he's not really going out of his way to flirt with her or anything like that. I think like he's that. like too cool for that. Like he's such the polar opposite than Joel. You know, I mean, he's the type of guy who you are drawn to without him having to make any effort at all. So, yeah, that's why he's like, was I supposed to make a pass at you? Like, it's sort of like, I don't I mean, I'm so chill that like, I don't I don't have to do that kind of thing. You know, women just sort of like come to me. Now, do I think it's a good idea for Midge and him to get together? I do not. Even though I really, really, really like the sparks between them. um, I think that. You know, he is a player, and I do not think that Midge needs to get into that situation. I do not think he's a father figure for Ethan and Esther. Right. And I don't think he would do well with Rose and Abe. And I just, I don't think that it's, you know, he's not quite the right guy. Someone between Joel and Lenny, somewhere I, I, I think, on the spectrum. I think I've said this before about Lenny. He'd probably be a, a pretty cool friend as long as you weren't hoping for like a Christmas card kind of thing from him. You exactly. Know? And I think he'd be a cool friend and, and, and a bad idea to try to date because I think he would cheat on you so fast. It's not even funny. And he'd just do that that arm shrug that he did just when he was in the first episode. <laughs> exactly. <or something. laughs> and like sort of like you knew what you were getting into, you know? Right. So Susie is so freaking impressed that Midge knows Lenny. This scene was a little surprising to me because this show, in a way, this series kind of charts his his ascent, you know, because from the beginning, he's at the gaslight where schmoes apparently start. 
And by the end, he's kind of calling his own shots, you know? Right. And so this is midstream. So we can assume he's gotten some popularity because even though he started the Gaslight, which relied on Susie as kind of a gatekeeper, you know, to, to getting a spot. Now she's like, that guy's a god. I can't even talk when I'm around it. I guess he, he's sort of raised up. And I was surprised to see that she didn't have that. I mean, she would have been able to say whether or not he got a gig or not, you know, before. And now she's acting like he's so much better than her. I but, guess. But in this in the world of showbiz, he is. You know, she she is a peon, you know. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, yes, he at one point had to converse with her. But you know, for a very short period of time. And so, you know, it's, I mean, and he remembered her, you know, he's like, oh yeah, you know, you work over at the Gaslight. So, I mean, no, I don't think it was surprising. I mean, to be like starstruck later because she's not a big fish, you know, at all. So I think that that part made sense. But what was interesting to me about that scene was Midge's role and that in that particular case, she was so comfortable with the level of not just control, but like, of course she would know the coolest guy in the room because like that's her status, you mm. know? And so Susie, on the other hand, is like, you know, confused for a little boy all the time and acted as such. Whereas Miriam was totally like, yeah, this is my friend Lenny, like no big thing. And I think that that comes from a lot of, you know, repeated scenarios where she is the big fish and it ain't no big thing you know this is just my friend lenny yeah she played it very cool very cool well in talking about whether lenny would be a good father to esther and ethan it turns out that ethan has been giving miriam some some pause and she discusses it with imogene as they walk in the park that whole concept of how do you know how to parent if you don't have dr spock comes up dr spock is is a kind of a i don't know pop culture figure <laughs> from the medical world whose popularity had all but waned by the time we were we were kids in the 80s so i'm roughly familiar with the you know who this guy is he wrote this note all book that you know a generation or two re- referred to religiously on child rearing i think it would be the equivalent of like how in our timing of being parents though what to expect when you're expecting okay everybody had that book everybody this was the with the book that everybody had everybody would refer like if your child does this what do i do that's it's the same exact thing what to expect when you're expecting was very much like an updated version of it and they went into a little bit more graphic detail you know about what was going to really really happen what should you really expect where dr spock was a little more philosophical well just you know you were a lady who was reading it so and i mean a lady not a woman so i mean you know it's there's a lot of like do's and don'ts and mismanners kind of kind of feeling but i felt really interested in the fact that while imogene very much needed to be told day by day how to parent midge was very much the opposite and was like well i you know i just do now whether we think she's a good mom or not such a good mom that i will leave up in the air i mean what do you think? Do you think that as what we've seen thus far, is she a very good parent? That's a loaded question. Good parents can come from all different kinds of situations. Some would say that people that throw themselves completely into parenting and lose what was their former self in the in the name of this new parent self that is like all involved, like 
That's the ideal of a good parent. And then there's other parents that would look at that and say, are you fucking crazy? You know, when you're, when those kids leave, you are left with nothing because you've given up your entire self. And you've probably been showing a very unrealistic view to your kid of like how the whole world's going to treat them. You know, everyone's not going to stop what they're doing to deal with you little one. So I, I agree with you. And I would kind of leave that out to the viewers and ask you guys to, to, you know, write into us. Let us know. What do you think? Is Midge a good parent? Because, you know, she chose to live very close to her parents and, you know, they are such a part. They have this multi-generational parenting going on. Or is she like not very good in that, you know, she's brought, brings up later in this episode that she didn't even have a picture of her kids in her wallet. I don't either. We all have pictures on our phones now. We would show something like that, but I wouldn't have a printout picture at any point, even before we had phones. I would lean toward good because- I do too, because I think she cares about this, them. And- this show is not about her parenting. This is about her becoming this comedian in a time where there were no comedians. Who gives a shit if she did times tables in her in the time off, you know? Well, I, I'm just talking about it in, in, in reference to I'm this saying they're not scene. showing it to us. Because it's not sure, interesting. It's sure. not germane to the story. It just made me wonder because Imogen questioned like you haven't even read the parenting books. And so to that to that end, even though we're not shown those scenes with the kids, I was just wondering, you know, it, it does she do it? Uh, there was another part to this uh, episode where they, um, Esther has an earache and she tells her mom, you know, like I just put her hands under her tush and like sit on her in order for her to not move for like after the eardrops. Now that's pretty funny instructions to give somebody else. Cause when she like, she leaves the door, she's like, don't forget to sit on the baby. Like, you know, it's like super funny. And so I wonder about that. Like, is that considered good parenting or like not so good or questionable? I don't know. I'm going to leave it up to the viewers. We don't have to answer that tonight. Cause we have many more episodes to go where we may see a little bit more of her parenting. Let's get on to her, her, such strange uh, situation with the law that she's constantly having to deal with. She's smart. She has a college degree. She's been out in the world. She's a functioning adult. And she has no idea that when you are in front of a judge, you are supposed to tell that judge everything he wants to hear. You know what I mean? I think that comes from status. I think that comes from a place of like, I've never had to sit down and be quiet in a in a situation like this. So uh, let's back it up a little bit. So starting with the lawyer, you know, she doesn't even know that, you know, she's not there to hire him because that's the position she's always been in. She's always had the upper hand. And this is a situation where it's like, no, you have to wait and see if he'll even give you the time of day. Even back it up further, she doesn't seem to even know fully the decency laws and that she's not allowed to say those things and not allowed to do those things on stage. All of those things like stand out to her as like a what? Because her status in society has given her a lot of privilege and she's not really accustomed to having to bow down all the time. You know, she treats people nicely, her doorman, you know, service people, whatever. But, you know, the judge is like representative of a, of a, different authority figure that she really hasn't encountered. She didn't think she had to go to court. She thought because she got out of jail before, like in the same night that she doesn't even have to answer to anybody. Do you think in this whole sequence of all the stuff you just described, plus the the interactions with the judge, how we were mentioning earlier, how the show tries to stay true to its time. Do you think that it's possible that 
these elements are an anachronistic streak of modern feminism, just kind of eyedroppered right on Midge to see what it would be like if you applied those modern sensibilities like little lady, you know, that kind of stuff. But in that time period, I think, yes, part of it is because she is such an unusual force, you know, during this time. I mean, compare her to Imogene, compare her to Rose. Right. I mean, she right. is a very different woman during this time. And Imogene's so, like yeah, a Betty Draper. Yes. Carbon copy. Yes. And so in very many ways, yes. But I also think that this time period is so interesting in that it is very Betty Draper ish in that. But look what happened. You know, she had like the friends next door. Remember the divorcee with the kids next door? Like, right. All that kind of stuff. Like the different <laughs> women existed during this time. But because we're coming at it from Miriam's background and her point of view, then it's like she is now turning into a woman who like she never grew up with or knew or had friends like. And so, you know, I do think as we go on in this series, we're going to see where where were young women during this time at all different walks of life who maybe didn't choose to get married right away or chose to follow a career path or go to college or do whatever. What were the different choices that other women made? Because I do think this is a kind of a, not a breaking point, but like sort of there were some, there were some choices that women were allowed to make. However, now with the judge, this was a very interesting part where you were describing you felt like this was really parallel to Abe having to come literally hat in hand to Moish she had to come around and realize like she wasn't going to be able to just bark out at the judge and have her way she was going to have to play by his rules basically in the age old adage about the irresistible force meeting the immovable object I believe that Miriam has often believed that she is definitely one of those two and the other is always going to be conquered by her and the judge is the first time maybe where where she has met a figure that it doesn't matter how irresistible her force is she can't penetrate that object there's just and you shouldn't try you're going to come out badly well, and she did come out badly. I mean, that fine and having to go ask Joel, I, all of those parts to me seemed like where her control kind of got in check. So she was trying to control the situation, thinking she was going to hire a lawyer. She was going to tell the judge how it was going to be. And everything got checked. Like, you know, no. And in fact, you don't have any financial means to support yourself. So now you have to actually ask Joel for money. And actually, you know, even the lawyer doesn't have as much control as you had hoped in the courtroom. He didn't have control over what charges were going to get dropped and which ones the judges the judge was going to, you know, really be upset about. It it was it was a really interesting study in control and privilege status and you know, where does Miriam fall in it? And she learned some hard lessons. Well the judge spells it out. He says, I would have dropped everything, but your mouth mm-hmm. made it so that I can't. And how painful to be in that position. I mean, that would make you feel like such a child. I mean, beyond a child to be told, like, I was gonna drop all these, but because you did you were, you know, misbehaving. It's so condescending and awful, but very realistic. And she really had to eat crow in this. And then she had to come back and that whole part where she was like, my emotions got the best of me. After all, I am a woman. I mean, it was like, (laughs) oh, my God. It was painful. But at the same time, you know, she has to wrap her brain around where she really is in society, you know, 
Yeah. And and, <laughs> and they sort of discussed that a little bit, like when she was talking with the jazz band outside and, you know, the one man says, you know, I was arrested for spitting. And then Lenny says more like spitting while black. And so they actually address this concept of like within the court system, within the legal system, you know, everybody, whatever you think your status is can really be dropped suddenly for no good reason. I, I don't agree with it. I don't think it's great. I think obviously the judge was extremely condescending with her because she was a woman asking where her husband was, all that stuff. It was like, ugh. and I don't want to get into like a horrible conversation. Like even the judge said, I, we're not going to talk about how much you hate the police or whatever. Like this is nothing like that. But I'm just saying during this time, and some would say up into this day, you know, there are people who absolutely are discriminated against, whether it's minorities or gender or whatever, religion, race, creed, Anywhere what have you. Yes, definitely. And to see the discrimination happening to her, I think, was a real eye-opening moment for our character. And listening to the jazz man who, you know, now they have pictures of their kids in their wallet. They're out there talking, you know, very oh, – like they're almost doing better than she is in these, um, you know, whatever you would consider the, well, that's a good person, that's not a good person. She didn't have the pictures, you know, and they totally did. And it was like, wow, you know, I really don't understand how the world works. So she really got like a major come up comeuppance in this episode. She also kind of dabbled in the, in, in another world that she wasn't accustomed to with the drugs and, you know, actually taking a couple of hits off of a joint and then going on stage and saying things and doing things that she really would never have done. That was a pretty hilarious set that was mixed with maybe a little more of the real life questions, you know, like like she was asking about mothering. And Joel walked away from the relationship and essentially walked away from the kids, except for whenever he could come and get them, right? But she has the same kind of doubts. She admits it on stage, Right. Was I even supposed to have kids? I mean, women are supposed to be mothers, right? She says that in this kind of way that's like, but I'm not so sure that that it's true for everybody. Well, and I think that this goes back to a lot of the, you know, her questioning her role and her position in society. You know, like I just assumed I was supposed to have kids because I'm a woman and that's what we're supposed to do. And it never occurred to her that just talking to other adults traveling, you know, being a comedian, all these things like wherever an option, you know, she thought she had to go have a boy and a girl and raise them and, and be married. Right. So, I mean, I liked it that that whole set like asked a lot of questions. I adored Lenny Bruce's <laughs> complete, just like flustered face when she comes and starts just gobbling the pretzels off his table. Well, after she does this, uh, pretty uncanny, like Lenny Bruce impression on stage. And then she comes and gets his food and then forgets that she's supposed to intro the band, goes and does that and comes back. And he's like, he does a shoulder just shrug. Just like, oh time. my God, like you're such a train wreck, right? Yeah. It's too funny. It's awesome. Well, so we have that final scene of the this episode with Joel. Again, we discussed this a little bit, but coming back to her, like I love the phrase you used, ambushing her and, you know, offering to have this all go back to normal. And I feel like, you know, given her journey in this episode, she had an opportunity to really think about, do I want to go back to that life? Do I want to be the Dr. Spock reading you know, judge obeying, straight-laced woman who is looked down upon? 
Or am I ready to like cast this world off and question it and really move forward with different choices with my eyes open? And so I feel like her saying no to Joel was so much more than saying no to Joel. It was really like, I want to say no to all of my preconceived notions of what this world has to look like and how I, I play out in it. And I think that it really set us up nicely for the trajectory of the rest of the season. That's good insight. I mean, I can't, I can't really add anything to that that, <laughs> that would like be like, yeah, but you missed this. No, I couldn't say that. There was a lot of cool nuanced moments in this episode that I think that, that I know we're not touching upon. I mean, they, you know, there was a lot of subtlety in the acting of this. You know, I thought that the character of Rose and Abe and all their small moments, you know, just the way that Abe was like, did this like hand flourish like several times and he would manipulate his hat during the conversation with Moish to be so uncomfortable and, and so, um, you know, literally hat in hand trying to make this system work. Everything with Miriam about her costuming, you know, everything that she wore reflected so much about her old way of thinking. And, you know, basically at the end she was like, I'm going to burn this outfit. I mean, I think that that's the most concrete example of like that life and the way I used to think, I'm just going to burn it. You know, Mm. like I'm over it because I thought I understood the lessons that I was supposed to learn in life. You're supposed to dress for a meeting. And now it turns out I'm like a laughingstock. And I'm like, I so didn't get it that I'm I'm sick of it. I'm like shoving it all off. So I, I very much look forward to the, the next couple of episodes. Do you have any predictions for where you see this going? I know we have watched it once, but still like just the idea of the setups and stuff. I feel like we've learned a lot in the rewatch. And so I'm sort of like, I feel like I didn't see this episode for what it was. Like you said, it sort of came off very filler and not a whole lot happened. But upon rewatch, it was like, oh, no, now I can see how it set us up for the next one. This episode is probably the last where Midge and the kids get to ex- get to kind of keep existing off of the mo- momentum of their former life. You know, getting, you know, maybe the rent or whatever those other factors are that were good up until a certain point. And then things have got to change. And so it's got to suck for a little bit. Um, I agree. And then that'll be interesting to see how she decides to to accept, you know, the sort of step down that she's going to have to take from being, you know, the the wife in the household to going back to being a daughter and having to play that role. I definitely feel like, again, like Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino brought in so much of what we've seen in their voices in other works, both Gilmore Girls and Bunheads. There were a lot of moments here um, in Bunheads. You know, one of the things is that she really wanted to pursue being a dancer. And Amy Sherman Palladino had a situation where had a dance audition and also to go and take a meeting about Roseanne. And she had to pick, are you going to be a writer? Or are you going to go be a dancer? And, you know, so I think a lot of this speaks to like women's choices and how you can't really have it all. And what are you willing to give up? And what are you willing to pursue? What's worth pursuing? And does everyone have to do it the same way? So I think there's a whole lot going on here that is really, you guys, I think there's so much conversations that could be had amongst couples. There's probably plenty of women who are like examining their lives after watching these episodes. And um, certainly tons to talk about with your girlfriends. I know I do. Constantly. (laughs) I'm like, hang up the phone. Tell her we're going to bed. Nonstop. So I says Mabel, I says. (laughs) Exactly. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening. 
This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.